Tonight's Bible reading comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 10 to 25. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were all saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. Thank you so much for that. Well, good evening again, one and all. It is good to be here bringing God's word to you. And uh, obviously we're continuing our series in uh, Mark. <clears throat> and um, as has been the habit, we won't be covering everything in detail. There's absolutely no way we can actually do that. So I encourage you when you go home to dig more into this word. And there may be a couple of things that I say that just triggers something. And, you know, pursue that. Don't let it go. Just find out what God is trying to say to you. And uh, so tonight, I, I really hope that um, you leave challenged or uh, changed or humbled or something anyway, something where God speaks to you and it draws you closer to him. So let's just pause and pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. I thank you for how you challenge me when I prepare a message uh, for your people. And Lord, my prayer tonight is simply that we will hear your voice, that we'll respond, um, that we'll just meet with you. And uh, we pray that now, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we read this account in Mark, this evening, Mark 14, uh, Jesus is only a couple of days out from actually being killed. And so he's well aware of this. And uh, uh, for me, it seems to place special significance on the few things that occur in these last couple of days. So as we read through this, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind, that Jesus is pushing uh, certain things uh, as uh, he speaks these last couple of messages uh, to his disciples and certainly to the people around him. So Mark 14 begins 
with the chief priests and teachers of the law um, planning more determinably to have Jesus put to death. You know, they were looking at a way of arresting him and things like that. But now they're really plotting to ensure that this happens. And it's interesting what they say here about them not doing it during the feast unless there be an uproar with the people, because that's exactly when it happens, hey? So it's obvious that they were just looking for opportunity. And even though they said this, when the opportunity arose, they grabbed it with both hands and decided to put Jesus to death. So the desire to kill Jesus obviously changes all of that. And um, it's interesting that they don't realise the significance of the timing that occurs at this time for us as Christians. And it's their actions at this time that plays a significant role in transforming the meaning of Passover for us. We don't remember Passover as that time when God struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt and liberated Israel from their bondage. We remember it as the death of Jesus, God's beloved son, which happened so we were no longer in bondage to sin and death. And this chapter begins the account of the most tragic and yet wonderful events in history. These leaders believed they were in control. They believed that they would triumph. But it's God's will, as always, that is accomplished. And the thing is, in the midst of this, this whole story is about the power of forgiveness. And as we move through this passage, we get to this next section, which is speaking about Jesus' anointing in Bethany. And... and Jesus in the house of Simon the leper. And we don't know a lot about Simon except for the fact that he's a Pharisee, uh, which we read in another one of the Gospels. And I encourage you to do actually read that account. And we also know that this is a man who's been healed because if he was Simon the leper, he wouldn't be able to entertain people. He'd actually be outside the city limits because he would be crying out continuously, unclean, unclean, and people would not approach him. And the incredible thing is we have this Simon who's involved, but the focus of this story is not on Simon. It's on this woman. And this woman comes in with this flask and she does this incredible, extravagant act for Jesus. And those looking on believe that what she's done is a total waste. They believe it is ridiculous. And I'm not sure if we grasp just how crazy uh, what occurred here is. We're told that this ointment could have sold for 300 denarii. And we all know that. We read that in scripture. We're all told that a denarii is about a day's or a working man's wage in that time. And so when we think about that, we go, yeah, that's a lot of money. But if we look back in Mark 6.37, that's the record of the disciples speaking to Jesus about the need to provide food for 5,000 people. That's only the men. There's women and children there as well. And they say it would take 200 denarii to feed these people. A lot of money, hey. If we were to take that into Australia's average wage today, Australia's average wage, I know a lot of you are going to be shocked, is hovering around the 65000 mark per year. So if we take 300 days of work, because we only work five days a week, it's actually a year and a half or thereabouts. This lady who comes in and pours this jar of this expensive ointment upon Jesus in today's day and age. Thank you, mate, but I will take two. That's a Did you pray over it? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. So this, la- this lady actually comes in in today's day and age. If she broke this over Jesus today, it would be about $90,000 worth. 
That's not like Old Spice stuff, okay? This is extravagant. It's extreme. It's crazy. It's not just expensive. It is over the top. And she comes into this place ashamed because of who she was, ashamed because of what she had done. But she comes because she is thankful because she's desiring to show her love. She's desiring to show her devotion. She's desiring to show her thankfulness to Jesus for what he had done for her. And we don't, we don't hear the account of what's happened. We can read some stuff in some other Gospels. But this woman, this woman's story is incredible. Do you realize that in the passion, in the time when Jesus walks to the cross and everything that happens between in that time, this is the only one who shows true intimacy to Jesus? Do you realize that? And we hear in some of the other Gospels that she kissed his feet and things like that. No one shows that sort of intimacy to Jesus. It was just this woman. And she's recorded and we remember her. And every time the Gospel's spoken about, we remember this woman. There is another kiss. It's a kiss of betrayal. And so this woman, we don't know what's going on in her mind. We'll never know. But we do know what the others are thinking. They talk about what an incredible waste this is. They talk about how this could be given to the poor and how they you know, um, aren't really concerned for the poor. I think we all know that, hey. Because you see, these guys, they, they, they wouldn't have given this extravagant gift to the poor. They possibly would have sold it. They would have given a small portion of that to the poor. But their rules and regulations of the day dictated that if they do something to show care for the poor, they get brownie points with God. And so that's why they would have spoken about doing something for the poor. And I don't believe they would have actually given this full amount to them. They were just looking for earning that reward from God. But in their mind, it was really a reward before man. And there's only one person in that room who supports, values, cherishes and honours this woman and what she's done. And he's the only one who really matters, hey? Jesus says, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are talking about the woman today. Isn't that incredible? And from this account in Mark, we don't know this woman's name or motivation. It's mentioned in other Gospels. But when we read Luke, we're told this. Therefore I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. And in our passage tonight, Jesus says this woman has done a beautiful thing. She has done what she could. And this woman stands before her saviour, motivated by love, and she pours out on him the most valuable, precious gift she can. Can you see the irony of that? It's just crazy. I just, in a couple of days' time, Jesus will be hanging on a cross, motivated by love pouring out his blood for us. The most precious, valuable gift we will ever know. In all of this, we're called to remember. Remember. 
I want to look at what occurred in the upper room with Jesus' disciples. There's so many things that come together in this story. And what we need to know first and foremost is the fact that Jesus was looking forward to this time with his disciples. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This would be his last meal with them before he died. And I can't get my head around what Jesus would be feeling at this time. Here are these men he's spent so much time with, so much has been invested in them. And the whole point of him being here on earth is now being outworked. He, know that he's going, he knows that he's going to the cross. He knows this is the last time he'll eat with them. And he's tried to forewarn them of what's going to happen. He's tried to show them, but they still don't get it. They still don't understand what Jesus is talking about when he says he must die. And even as we read this account, we don't understand all the little things that are lining up so Jesus can have this time with his followers and institute something that we are called to celebrate as believers. I want you to think about what is going on in Jerusalem at this time. This is one of the greatest feasts that they actually have. Jerusalem has a population of somewhere around 60,000 people. It would swell to at least 95,000 people at this time, possibly up to 300,000 people during the celebration of these feasts. Jerusalem's roads aren't that wide. I've walked some of these roads and they're not that wide. And so these people would have been packed in. And what you have to remember is there wasn't all this accommodation. And so it was a responsibility of those who lived in Jerusalem to provide a place for those who wanted to eat the Passover meal. And so this asking for a room where the disciples could celebrate the Passover wasn't unusual. But imagine the streets. These people will be carrying the sacrificial lamb, the lamb that has been sacrificed. It gets sacrificed at the temple, then they're given permission to eat it within the walls of Jerusalem. So they'd be carrying those things with them. As they moved around to the different places they had to go, they'd all be carrying water jugs and things like that. They'd be carrying what they had to have for that meal. And so the streets would be absolutely blocked. And the, G- and the disciples say to Jesus, you know, where do you want us to go and prepare this meal? And this is what Jesus says. Behold, when you have entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So we've got these crowded streets. We've got people pressing in. We've got this incredible crush. So Jesus makes it easy for his disciples. How did he make it easy? A man carrying a water jug. How many men carried water jugs in Jerusalem? As far as I know, one is in this story. It's not a job a man does. And so these guys in this crush of people is given this big neon sign saying, this is the dude you need to follow. This is where you need to go. And so they go and they say to the guy, we, the master wants to use the room and he gives them the place where they need to go. God provided this guide. This was a rare sight and the disciples just followed him and they prepared the feast. Man, this mic's driving me crazy tonight. Oh, that could explain it. Don't tell Pastor Dad. Okay, let's try that again. All right, we may be better now. We good? Sweet. So in all of this, Jesus arrives. He reclines at the table with them. 
And as mentioned before, Jesus has earnestly desired to share this meal with them. So those gathered in the upper room are the ones that are closest to Jesus. They've travelled together for the last three years. Jesus has invested in them. And Jesus loves them. It's really that simple. And, I mean, I experienced this. Elena's experienced this. When you spend time with people, when you, when you invest in them, you, you just end up loving them. You, you can't help it. And we're so honoured and privileged to have so many people who frequent our house. And we're growing in love with the people at SDBC. But we've got so many children that uh, we dearly love. And we love spending time with them still, even though they're no longer part of the churches we're involved in. And, and Jesus has done more than that. And he loves these guys. He, 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 he just wants the very best for them. And I'm not sure how Jesus would have appeared to them at this table. I think there would have been a level of sadness because he knows that he's going. He knows this is the last meal. He knows one of them is going to betray him. So I think there is that level of sadness there. But there's also a joy because he's celebrating this meal. He knows what this meal represents. And I think the disciples likewise would have had mixed emotions. They would have been trying to work out exactly what was going on. And then Jesus says something that's a bit of a bombshell. You know, he says this, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And we know that Jesus is speaking about Judas, but the disciples didn't know that. They don't know who this is. And so one by one, they ask, is it I? And we need to realize that this is something we should be asking ourselves. The disciples saw the potential in them that they could be the one who would betray Jesus. And they wanted an assurance from Jesus. They wanted Jesus to say, it isn't you, it's okay. And Jesus doesn't do that. He answers them though and he says, well, it is one of the 12. It's one who will dip bread into the dish with me. And again, in our culture, in this age, we lose the significance of what is being said here. If you sit down at table and eat bread with someone, it bars you from taking any action against that person. You just don't do it. And so these guys are reclining and sitting at this table. They're gathering together and this is evidence of peace. This is evidence of trust. This is evidence of forgiveness. This is evidence of brotherhood. And yet there's one sitting at this table who is going to betray Jesus. And it was totally unthinkable. It was a horrendous act. No one would do it. It is considered to be the worst act of betrayal. And that's against man. How much more if someone is to do it against the Son of God? And I don't think we've got words that can express just how bad that is. And it's this very act of betrayal that will be the catalyst for Jesus being handed over to the rulers, where he'll be judged, where he'll be flogged, where he'll be humiliated, and where ultimately he'll be crucified. And so the atmosphere in the room changes. It's about to change again. When you think about the disciples sitting in that room, has anything happened at this table that they'd want to remember? I don't think I'd want to remember this meal. But Jesus is about to do something that will change the way Passover is celebrated for all believers, but particularly for these disciples. And he gives this to the disciples and it echoes down through history to you and me. 
and will continue to do so until Christ returns. And he takes the bread and he speaks a blessing over the bread. These are the traditional words that would have been spoken. He would have lifted the bread up and he would have said, Blessed be you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings bread out of the earth. That's what he would have said at this particular feast. Not in English. The disciples would have responded together with an amen after Jesus said that. Then traditionally the bread would have been broken and distributed. But Jesus does something different. He breaks the bread and he says, take, this is my body. And I'm not sure what you think when you read or hear these words. But the disciples, when they heard it, when Jesus said, this is my body, would have heard Jesus say, this is me. That's how they would have interpreted it. This is me. This is myself. Because when Jews heard the word body, they understood it meant the whole person. They understood it was who that person was. It wasn't just the physical body, which we so often take this to mean. It was actually who Jesus was. All of him. And then he takes the cup. And he recites a traditional blessing over it, which is, Blessed are you, the Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And then he gives it to the disciples. They take and they drink. And once they, they've done that, then Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And it's interesting that Jesus gives them the wine and they drink it. And then he makes this statement. We have no idea what this statement would have done to the disciples. Jews have this incredible aversion to blood. Genesis 9 forbids the eating of flesh that still has the blood in it. The law forbids the drinking of blood because it contains the life and because it had been ordained by God as a means of atonement. Think about all the sacrifices and the pouring out of blood that occurred. So drinking blood was not only considered breaking the law, it was also considered uh, desecrating something that was made holy by God. And so perhaps this is why Jesus said, this is my blood after they drank, because they perhaps wouldn't have drunk it if he had said it prior to. And you know what? The disciples didn't get that at the time. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. But they will. Wine is considered the blood of the grape. And the grapes were picked from the vine and they were crushed, producing the blood. The blood of the sacrificial animals is poured out by the priests on the altar as a sin offering to atone for the people. And Jesus' statement about his blood is revealing that in him is a new sacrifice being offered to God by his death. The price will finally be paid. Think about where that leaves his disciples. I still don't think that on that night they fully understood what was going on. I don't think they fully understood what Jesus was doing. They don't get what Jesus has said and what he'll ultimately do for them. But they will. When they do, they'll never be able to break bread again without thinking of Jesus. Can you imagine what that would be like? Every time someone breaks bread, they'll think of Jesus on this night and then they'll think about what Jesus did for them. Every time they gather for a meal, it'll be the same thing for them over and over and over again. 
their lives have been changed forever. Do we understand the significance of what Jesus did on that night? Jesus didn't tell his disciples what he did on that night just so that we could sit in this place tonight and remember something that happened a couple of thousand years ago. Or that we could gather together on the first Sunday of every month and eat bread and wine and remember something that happened a couple of thousand years ago. What Jesus did on that night, what he said, is for me today. It's for you. He says, This is my body, all of me, everything that I am, all my potential. It's broken for you, it's given for you. He wants us to make those words a reality in our life today. He wants us to engage with him. And he says, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for you. This is my life. I gladly, joyfully accept the will of my father in pouring my life out for you. It isn't something that just happened way back then in history. This is something that happened for each and every one of us. And we need to realize that today. We need to realize that Jesus is looking down through history and he's saying, I did this for you. Do you understand that? If you do, doesn't that do something to you? Doesn't that change you? Doesn't that just um, make your heart overflow with love and who knows what other emotions? I want you to think about that woman who poured that nard over Jesus. She actually got it. She was so appreciative of the sins that had been forgiven. And Jesus said she did what she good and what she, what she did was a beautiful thing. And I want to ask each and every one of us doing what we can for Jesus. Are we stepping out as that woman did? Not caring what people were thinking about her around her, but stepping out for Jesus because she appreciated what he did for her. What's he calling you to? She didn't care about what people were thinking, what they were saying. They were saying some pretty nasty things. She was focused on Jesus. She was devoted to him. And no one and no thing was going to distract her from doing all she could, what she could for Jesus. And you know what? We have a tendency to make excuses and we sweat the small details and things like that. And I think we've seen tonight that we don't need to worry about that. We don't need to worry about what's going to happen. If we respond to Jesus, Jesus will provide the means and the way in which we can serve him. Think about the man carrying the jug of water, the jar of water. It's a minute detail. It's a small detail, but it was so significant to the disciples and it helped them so much. Jesus does those little things for us even today. He wants to encourage us in what we do. I want you to think about that woman. Such an extravagant act. So crazy. And I want you to ask yourself, is Jesus worthy of extravagant praise today? Is he worth your extravagant praise? And are you willing to do it? 
Some of us perhaps have not thought through what it means to live for Jesus. He gave all of himself for you. Everything. He didn't hold anything back. He asked us to do the same. Will we, will you give all of yourself to him? That's all he asks for. Nothing more. Giving ourselves fully to him is an act of extravagant worship. And he's so deserving. So deserving. Let's pray. Father, I want to worship you extravagantly. I want to honour you with my very life. And Lord, I pray that for the people gathered here tonight. And again, Lord, I know you've spoken to people. I know Holy Spirit is prompting them. Lord, I pray they'll listen to your voice and not that voice that is trying to discourage them. And I pray, Lord, we will grow into a people who are committed to you, a people who are willing to worship you extravagantly. That, Lord, even as we sing this last song, we won't care about the people around us. We will focus fully upon you and all you have done for us, Lord. We'll realise that you gave all of yourself to us. And, Lord, even as an act of worship, we're going to give ourselves to you now in this song. Lord, will you let us worship you in truth? And, Father, if there's anyone here, who needs some help, who needs some guidance, who needs some prayer. Will you give them the courage to come to the front? Lord, will you let us celebrate together and just pray and praise and honour you? And for each of us, Lord, let us do that throughout this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.